All right, so uh, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> uh, I'll just read it to you. We're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, where it says, um, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, uh, who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and then they're going to identify actions they did on Christ's behalf. Uh, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So let's identify what are the issues in this text that may make it a difficult text for us to understand. And... Um, Certainly, in you submitting these passages, I didn't ask you to you know, explain in detail uh, all the things that you were curious about, so I'm just kind of making some assumptions here. Uh, for this one, I'm, I'm assuming, of course, that uh, some people might have uh, questions about this whole idea of a person calling upon God and recognizing God as Lord, but it's almost like that's not enough. You've got to do something. So I'm, I'm just... I'm just thinking that there's probably some questions in the room tonight about sort of the grace versus works debate. And um, then there may be a question in the room about how a person could possibly, who does not truly know the Lord in a, in a saving way, be able to perform uh, works on God's behalf. So I'm, I'm assuming, if I've uh, uh, understood you correctly, that these are the issues that um, you're concerned about. So, what I would like us to do is to, what was that? Oh, it's a cart. I thought it was rain there for a moment. I thought, wow, it's really raining out there. Susie's bringing us coffee. Um, okay, so I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7 because there's something I think that's important for you to understand or at least see in the context of the passage. So we're looking at verses 21 to 23, right? But if you look just back from there, at verses 15 to 20, what would you say is the, uh, what, what is the overarching theme or teaching of Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20? What do you see there in the text before we get to 21? Okay. Okay. Good. Keep that in mind, by the way, for a passage we're going to look at later tonight. But who, who is Jesus talking to, Jack? Or I should say talking about. More specifically, false prophets. So, I, I want to draw your eye to that because here's, here's what we need to see. Uh, if there's such a thing as false prophets, false prophets, then it's not a leap for us to acknowledge the fact that there could also be false followers, right? So we often think about false prophets, like false pastors, false apostles, the guys that are going around preaching. We're like, yeah, we're okay with that. We acknowledge throughout Scripture there's false teachers. But then we sort of bring it down into the proverbial pew, and we're like, false followers? I don't know if I like that idea. And we start to get a little uncomfortable. But if we're consistent... We shouldn't have any more of a problem with false followers than we would with false prophets. 
So I'm just going to say straight up that I think the first paragraph we just looked at deals with false prophets, and the paragraph we're dealing with tonight deals with false followers. So average run-of-the-mill people who are serving Christ, supposedly, but in fact are false. Now, presumably, presumably, and there, there's probably a scale we would need to come up with from being fully knowledgeable of one's deception to being duped by one's own deception. Presumably, not all false prophets know they are false prophets. Can we maybe agree that that's a possibility? I'm sure there are many throughout history who have willfully tried to deceive people, perhaps for financial gain or purposes of feeding their own ego. But I, I don't think that we would have a huge problem with acknowledging that there may be some false prophets that actually think they are teaching and preaching the truth. So if that's the case, and again, I would suggest that most Christians would be like, yeah, I have no problem with that, then it's not a big leap for us to say that there are also many false followers who also think that they are the real deal. And I will give you one illustration of that from my own personal experience. When I was uh, 19, I had just finished one year of Bible college, looked for, was looking for a summer job, and uh, couldn't find one. So I just got in the yellow pages, let my fingers do the walking, and uh, started calling a few companies that I thought I might want to work for. And um, one guy, I left a message on the machine. He called me in for an interview, and he hired me. And so for that whole summer, we would um, strip and clean and apply textured coatings to concrete around people's pools, driveways, sidewalks. It was actually quite, quite an interesting process. But the fellow that I was working for was a member of the Kingdom Hall. And um, everyone else that he hired that summer was from the Kingdom Hall except for me. And so we would go on trips. Like I was living in London at the time. I remember taking a trip to Windsor for a whole week. I had never been to Windsor before, I don't think, but uh, we worked around someone's pool. I don't even know where it was. I didn't know Windsor at the time. Did a job around people's pool. So all day long I'm working with Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, at night, I remember we slept in the library of the Kingdom Hall. All the books around me. And you can understand, I'm a Bible college student, so I'm like uh, a deer during deer season, right? <laughs> like... Like it was nonstop. Like I'm talking like from sunup to sundown, this 19-year-old's debating three Jehovah's Witness elders. And I loved it. <laughs> but um, no, no, not at all. I, it was actually quite fascinating. It was just on and on and on. So um, at the end of the, the one week where I was working with all three guys, I remember sitting down with one fellow. His name was Jay. And he said something to me, and I had to say the exact same thing back to him. And it was along the lines of, if this, this, these conversations we've had have been an eye-opening experience for me, because while I categorically disagree with so much of what you believe, um, if I didn't know you believed those things, you, like you look, you smell, you act, and you seem very much like a brother in Christ. 
and I do not believe he was, but I was probably, it was probably a good experience for me because I was surprised at how genuine, like deeply genuine this guy was about his faith. And I, I always assume people believe what they believe, but I sort of thought, well, if I can if I can talk to them long enough, it will become clear to everybody that they don't really believe what they believe as much as I believe what I believe. Because surely I believe what I believe more than they believe what they believe. And it was evident to me that wasn't true. Like on every level, intellectual, emotional, social, they believed what they believed to be true. And that was actually very helpful for me because it also reminded me of this, and I want you to hear me clearly on this. Um, we're not Christians just because we're really, really convinced we're right. There's, there's a little more to it than that. So this fellow, I would say, is a false teacher, but he absolutely thought he was otherwise, right? So I, I have no problem with the idea that a false prophet could think that he is, in fact, very correct. So, again, then it doesn't rock my boat, to suggest that certain run-of-the-mill Christians might genuinely think that they are the real deal, but in fact have bought into falsehood. And the, the, the sincerity of their faith is not the basis upon which God saves a person. So, you know the old line, you can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. So as we come into this text then, um, I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is warning those who say, Lord, Lord, maybe even with a high degree of genuinity, authenticity. Perhaps people who have even, in some way, shape, or form, mimicked the exact actions that marked apostolic ministry. Like they did things that looked very apostolic. Casting out demons. Um prophesying in Christ's name. But on some deep level, what they were doing was not, in fact, true gospel ministry. Now, is, is Matthew stressing law as a means of salvation? This is the next question we need to think about. Now, look at verse 22 for a moment, where he says, on that day, many will say, and then he lists the actions, and do mighty works in your name. Uh, Matthew stresses that you can do all the right things and not enter the kingdom. So in fact, it's the opposite of what some people try to suggest. Matthew is not saying here that if you do the right things, because look at, look at the text, right? In the text, it says, but the one who does the will of my father, right? You see that in verse 21? So, it, if, some, if you're just reading verse 21, you might assume, okay, the way to get to heaven is to do the will of the Father, to do good works. But the next verse makes it clear that's not true because the list of things that mark a false follower are actually good things. They're not bad things. He doesn't list fornication there or theft or anything like that. He lists things that the apostles themselves were doing but then basically says those aren't enough. So verse 21 and verse 22 take it, taken together make it clear that Matthew is not suggesting that doing the right things 
is sufficient to enter the kingdom of God. And this squares with what Paul, of course, would teach. To do the will of the Father, one must know and have surrendered to the Father. To truly do the will of the Father, one must know and have surrendered oneself to the will of the Father, which I would just argue it's a different language, of course, we find maybe in Romans. This is the essence of salvation. The essence of salvation is to truly surrender oneself to the will of the Father and be identified as a son or daughter. True followership, then, is works following faith. Works following faith, uh, not works all by their lonesome. It's works following faith. And without followership, if you look at verse 23, and then I will declare them, Declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Without followership, God will push people away from his presence and declare their good works to be lawlessness. So I find that fascinating as well, that if the word lawlessness in verse 23 had followed like a series of bad, nasty things they were doing, fornicating, stealing, hating people, they'd be like, okay, well, yeah, those are lawless acts. But in the context, the lawlessness seems to point back to the things that are otherwise kind of good. They're apostolic kind of things, casting out demons. Who wouldn't want someone to be doing that for them? Or prophesying in Jesus' name. Who wouldn't want someone to be doing that for them? But in fact, God declares good works that would appear in this text to be lawless because they are done by someone who does not truly and authentically know the Father. So here's a, a dictum or a statement that I certainly didn't come up with. It's been tossed around for many generations, I'm sure, but I I find it to be a helpful one, and that is this. You can write this down if you like. Uh, We are saved by grace alone, but not by a grace that remains alone. What do we mean by that? We are saved by grace alone, but not by a grace that remains alone. After. Follows. Yeah. Exactly. So we, we just sort of need to stress this, and I think I maybe made a little bit of an attempt to do that on Sunday, that grace alone doesn't mean there's no works uh, required of us. It is true there are no works required for justification, but then the requirements do begin to manifest and prove and uh, fulfill and live out true justification. Unless, of course, you're justified, then you die the next minute. You don't have a lot of time. Like the thief on the cross didn't have a lot of opportunity to, you know, live for Christ. But... um, Those that do have a little bit of time do have a responsibility to follow him. And I think this is important for us to teach. I mean, we we tend to almost like get embarrassed by it or something because we think, well, that's going to detract from justification. But let's just teach what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that, that good works flow from the life of a person who is saved. So, For those of you that may be a a little newer to Christianity, I'll just draw a little uh, continuum here for you, and we're not going to put like everything on it, of course, but 
Um, let's just assume this is your life in relationship to the salvation process. And this is you at any particular point in time. We'll just say now. And assuming that you are a Christian, this is kind of like a, a little bit of a snapshot or summary of what the Bible calls salvation. Now, notice that this is, I've elongated the word to encompass the whole span. We evangelicals sometimes refer, I'm going to show you a number of steps here in a minute. We sometimes, when we talk about salvation, we, we're, we, we're referring only to one stage and that's because sometimes the Bible does refer to that one step as salvation, but the Bible also refers to the whole package as salvation. So uh, it begins with uh, election, and that actually took place before the creation of the world. So you can read Ephesians 1 for yourself on that. And then we have predestination, Okay, so God elects out of his electing grace. He then predestines, predetermines our salvation. Then uh, a lot of time passes and you're born. And um, in this process, you are uh, called, you are justified. And uh, we could throw some other things in here. Regeneration probably Uh, follows justification, not in terms of time, but logically. I'll describe that in a moment. And then we have this process called uh, sanctification. And at some point, death, which isn't really part of the salvation process, but I'll just put it in there. And then we have glorification. Um, There's some other steps in there like union with Christ and that kind of thing, but I'm just simplifying it. So uh, in space and time, you're alive and well. You're called, which is a word basically that refers to God's actions of uh, sort of speaking directly to you and making you aware of the gospel message. Justification is, I'll put a star beside this. This is the, the point in time when you actually are made new. And this is the point, okay, that we often, just for uh, abbreviation, we, we sometimes just refer to this. That's when we were saved, right? So growing up, we'd often say, when were you saved? We use a past tense. And what we're asking is, like, when did you get justified? When did you actually become spiritually reborn? And that's fine, but I'm just telling you straight up, that the Bible refers to the whole process as salvation. So we were saved, we are being saved, we will be saved, we can actually say. And um, then regeneration and justification, they would happen, and just hear me clearly on this, if you don't really like the technicality of it, then you can forget about it. But justification and regeneration are two stages or different elements in the salvation process. So justification is... The, the moment when God declares you in his sovereign plan to be righteous, even though you may 
still be unrighteous. He declares you, there's like a declarative judicial act where God declares you to be one of his children. And you're then adopted as his son. You're united with Christ, which are two other elements. So uh, regeneration then is the declaration is made and you are then spiritually made new. So the spirit within you is actually brought to life. Now, um, there's some debate in theology about which comes first. Like, are you regenerated? Are you made alive and then justified? Or are you justified and then regenerated? I believe you're justified and then regenerated. Logically, I believe that that's the process, although it's happening at the same time. But if I want to break it down logically, God has to declare it before there's spiritual rebirth. Now, this is sort of like all the, like, the moment of salvation stuff. And sanctification is a fancy word for growth and holiness. So that's, if you're saved now, this is what you're like doing. You're coming to class tonight, you're trying to grow in your knowledge and correct attitudes and be on mission with Christ and you know, do all the things that Christians do. And this is called sanctification. Here's where um, the Catholic Church mixes up justification and sanctification doesn't seem to understand that one comes before the other. And they start throwing things in there like, well, you've got to sort of do the kind of things that we would include as part of sanctification to get justification. So if you read the uh, Catholic catechism, it'll say, for instance, that your uh, justification is bestowed upon you through baptism. Whereas we would say, no, like baptism is a, it's kind of more like a, it's like the first step of sanctification because it's it's the act of like uh, identifying oneself as a believer and identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, right? And then, and then you die, and eventually you're glorified. Your body's taken out of the grave or out of the sea or out of the mouth, belly of a lion or however you went, and it's made anew, and you are ushered into the eternal abode of God. Um, so the reason why I mention this is because this act sorry, let me just get rid of this. all of these acts up to here are what we call monogistic or one sourced God is the source of all of those acts. But this here is synergistic in that you are now participating with God in your growth in holiness. So for instance, God, like you're reading the Bible and it says, um, whatever, be nice to people. Well, you now have a spirit in you, a Bible, accountability. You have all the resources to obey that. So God's going to convict you of it and encourage you to do that. But you need to like make a choice. And the cool thing is, is that before this, these acts took place, you were only two-thirds of who you should have been because your body was alive and your soul was alive, but your spirit was dead. 
So you didn't have the capacity to save yourself or really truly seek God in the fullest sense of the word. But once you come to Christ, then you're a three-thirds person. So as a three-thirds person with a, a spirit alive within you, I'm talking about the human spirit now, not just the Holy Spirit, but your spirit has been regenerated, it's no longer dead. You are then capable of obedience. You are capable of seeking God. You're capable of responding to God. You are capable of obeying God. And this is very important. It's, it's simple if you've heard it enough, but if you're just hearing it maybe for the first or second time, it's like, oh, okay. But hopefully the lights go on for you because I find this is really helpful to understand so that we can see why the unregenerate man isn't capable of truly and authentically seeking God, even though he may be called to do so. But the three-thirds man is capable of doing so. By the way, I, I use this illustration with my kids when we talk about like dating unbelievers or marrying unbelievers. I'm like, if you marry or date an unbeliever, you're only dating a two-thirds person because they, there's a whole aspect of them that is not yet alive. And uh, that aspect has huge bearing upon the whole orientation of life and intimacy and relationships and values and on and on and on and on. So... You want to make sure that you know, a whole person marries a whole person, not a whole person marries someone who's not yet whole, right? Uh, any questions about this then? Just stressing grace for justification, but once you're justified, the grace that God gives, you add to it by your obedience and your good works. That's a synergistic act. Yeah, Brian? Some people can and some people cannot. I think that there must be a time when God actually justifies you. It's not like he gives you a tenth of it one day and a tenth of it the next month and throws in 20% the following month. Um, part of growth and sanctification, I would suggest, is not only awareness of one's justification, but also the assurance of one's justification. So... I used to try to figure I used to try to wonder how this would all work, but then I realized I don't have a problem with the idea that when I was justified on October the sixth, nineteen seventy nine, there was a period of time after that where sometimes I would question whether I was truly saved. And then uh after those initial years passed, then I just never had those thoughts anymore because assurance had set in. So in the same sense, I don't have an issue with someone who says, you know, I, I don't r maybe remember not believing or, you know, 2014. I know I wasn't a believer in 2013, but I'm not really, something happened in 2014, but I'm not really sure when. But 2015, I, I know something happened last year. So I, I don't get all worked up about, um, and nor should you if you can't point to a date in the calendar. But logically, there is a moment in time when God justified you and you pass from death unto life. Yeah. James? Yes. Now, this kind of calling is different than the broad call that God puts. I, I can add a word. This is actually called effect, the effectual call, just to be a little more precise. So in a theology textbook, if you're reading about this, it would, it would be called effectual calling. So there's a general call that God gives to humanity to come to him. And we're actually going to look at a couple calling passages later in Romans. But effectual calling means it's effective. 
this, this call is irresistible. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Some of what you're saying uh, is true, and the intention of it might all be true, but just to add a little precision to it, uh, you, you never slip out of God's hands. Well, you, walk away, you may walk away, but that's a, that's a, 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 a term of fellowship. So um, just like in a, an intimate relationship, you may walk away from that person in the sense that you are no longer fellowshipping with them or your fellowship is not the greatest, but there's still a formalized union there. Like in marriage, like a couple may not be fellowshipping with each other. They may be treating each other poorly, but they are still married. There's still a status to that relationship. So is that like you're sleeping in separate rooms? It could be, yeah, <laughs> could be. So we, we don't want to s slip into using language like um, no longer saved or we're out of God's hands or we're no longer believers or justification isn't the case anymore. Those things, truly, if they are true and authentic, are for keeps. Okay? But one, it's not, it's not, um, justification is God's act. So it's not unheard of then for somebody to feel as if they aren't saved because they're not living in obedience to God. And then there's like an overwhelming conviction and they sort of return to warm fellowship with Christ. But in that interim period, they didn't lose their justification. They were still justified. They just weren't living properly. There's other people, of course, that just like the fellows in this text that may almost try to skip that whole middle section and they're just doing a lot of good things and hanging around the church or hanging around Jesus or doing what Jesus does, but there's never been a transformational work that's taken place in their life. And in that respect, they don't get any gold stars from God for what they do. Their works are actually still considered like filthy rags, to use Isaiah's language. Dennis? Yes. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, we don't want to play with terms too much, but maybe an idea that might help you a little bit is take any sin in the Bible and, you know, add an ing to the end of it. And it's an action, right? So you, you might find Christians that are lying. But if you change it to a noun and you say that person is a liar, that's a little more weighty. Like, it, that means, uh, I mean, I, I, I guess in the moment you're lying, you're a liar. But the thing I want to emphasize is, do you wear, like, the label of liar? Or is it just that on occasion you do something stupid and you lie for self-protective purposes or whatever? If you wear the label, you have reason to question the legitimacy of your conversion. So if you are an adulterer, that's your... It's like a characteristic that marks your life. A liar, a drunkard, a swindler. Again, we don't want to minimize the gravity of an individual sin, but a, a Christian who on occasion swindles or a Christian who commits an adulterous act 
or a Christian who has a greedy moment, but then confesses those things and moves forward, we probably wouldn't be apt to like label them as that. So just sort of think about when, when we sin, like is it a one-off that I immediately bring to the Lord, or is it something that kind of characterizes my life and I just keep doing it and I don't really seem to really care that much? Then you have cause to question the legitimacy of faith, right? So... Uh, so, uh, in, in actual fact, you will have sinning saints, but you won't have sinner saints. And some of you might say, oh, well, I'm not sure I agree with that um, because, you know, we're still sinners. Well, technically, we're actually not. You will not find, I'll, I'll, you can go through your concordance. There are a couple passages that could be taken that way, but you will actually not find the noun sinner ever applied to a Christian in the New Testament. Even though it's very common in the church for us to refer to each other as sinners, technically we're not. We're actually saints. Meaning that our status has actually changed in the eyes of God. So we're saints who sin, but we're, the, the label of sinner has been removed from us and it's been replaced with saint, meaning holy one. And I never knew that probably until... Uh, 10 years ago, I just always assumed it's appropriate to call Christians sinners because we sin. But then in my studies, I realized the New Testament doesn't actually refer to us post-salvation as sinners anymore. It's not our identity. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So that's not just a word that, um, you you have a Catholic background, right? Yeah, but um, in, in the Roman church, it's typical to refer to people who have met certain standards to be called saints, but that's, that's um, a traditional thing. The, the New Testament refers to it, the believer as a saint. So you're a saint. Saint Jorge. Saint Jack. I know it's hard to believe, but Saint Jack. <laughs> no. That's right. Yeah. Tell her to start calling you that. See how that one goes over. Okay, we're going to move over to Matthew 19. Sure. In the text? Verse 22 here. Okay. Um, so how could the Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy, uh, did, did we not prophesy in the Catholic Union? Like these things seem like <coughs> supernatural. Are they not just, are they not actions that could be executed by the Holy Spirit? Mm. Well, okay, the text, um, we have to surmise a little bit and speculate because I, I totally know what you're asking, um, but we just need to sort of maybe step back and think more broadly about Scripture. And um, there's instances in Acts where people are doing things that are sort of apostolic and supernatural in nature. Maybe there's, they're not the real deal. There's false prophets later on so prophecy is um in it's mostly forth telling but it's also a little bit of foretelling so that's kind of a miraculous sort of thing um but we have instances in the scripture where people that do not know the living god perform miraculous signs and engage in actions that might 
at first glance, be pretty convincing that they're the real deal. Like, where else would that power come from? Well, the only thing that we can um, conclude is that that power is either false, like they're not actually doing what they say they're doing, like how do you actually prove the demons come out kind of thing, or it's demonic in nature. So the, the most ancient example of that is the magicians in Egypt who were able to mimic many of the signs and wonders that Moses himself engaged in. There came a limit, you remember in the text where they're like, okay, we can't do this one. But they were actually doing things that we would consider to be miraculous. And they're, not, they're clearly not presented in the text as believers. They're not even presented as apostates. They're not even presented as like former believers. They're not believers at all. So that, that just says to us that when we think of the supernatural world, unbelievers have access to it as well. And they're bequeathed a measure of power to perform miracles from the devil, just like a believer is bequeathed a measure of power at times in certain dispensations to perform miracles that are on behalf of God. So this is important for us to understand because a lot of Christians have this idea, well, if someone performs a miracle, they're, they're the real deal. Well, not necessarily. The worshipers of the black arts in Egypt weren't. So just taking those broad scriptural statements and applying them to this text, it must be that these people are prophesying, are casting out demons, and either it's fake, they're claiming to do something they're not actually doing, or they're doing it, but the source of their power is not God. It's the devil or demons or whatever. Does that make sense? A good question because it's that's that's uh yeah it helps to it clarifies a lot of potential misunderstanding in several scriptural texts I think uh, so we're we're going to look at uh, Matthew nineteen <coughs> and this is a divorce text now when Jesus had finished these things he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Um, So we'll do a little something like this. Okay. So this is like Israel. This is much bigger. But Sinai, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Galilee's up here. And Judea at the time was on both sides of the Jordan River. Israel was bigger then than it is now. So, Jesus comes from Galilee in the north, which is like his ancestral home. He travels south, and he goes into Judea on the other side of the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Okay, nothing particularly unusual about the first verse. But then we have a question. The Pharisees, who are the Pharisees? Teachers of the law, yeah, kind of like priests, not really, but kind of like priests. And they were, they and a smaller group called the Sadducees, <coughs> which actually were older than the Pharisees, like they've been around longer, formed a, the governing body of the Jewish 
Sanhedrin. Okay? Yeah? I heard someone lecturing once, and they were given a, uh, a blessing, and they said it's not Pharisee, Pharisee. So is there a Pharisee too, like a different spelling, or is that just their no. opinion? It's nothing. Oh. It's just them wanting to pronounce English letters in a different way. I've never heard people say Pharisees, just Pharisees. That's it. I wouldn't, don't let it rock your boat, Sam. Yeah, no big deal. So, and the Pharisees came up and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the Pharisees are infamous for this. They like quote from scripture, but it, and they ask a question that in the eyes of the common man, say, yeah, that's a legitimate question. But there's always like a little trick to it, right? So they ask a question. It's a legitimate question, but there's going to be a follow-up to it. So can you, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the, the reason why it's, it's not even a great question because they know the law doesn't actually say that. It doesn't say, oh, any cause, just go for it. But they ask the question nevertheless. He answered, uh, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he takes them back to the ideal. Before he gets to, just follow the thinking here. Before he answers the question about divorce, he wants to make sure they actually understand the original ideal, which is marriage. Made them male and female, he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The leaving his mother and father doesn't mean you've got to move a thousand kilometers away, but the idea is when you're married, it's a new household. You're, you're no longer under the authority of your parents. Okay? It's like a new, distinct unit. Respect your parents, but they don't tell you what to do anymore. And the two that are now married become one flesh. This is all like echoing Genesis, early chapters of Genesis. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So he says it again. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So now he makes a value judgment on his statement, just kind of really driving home from several angles. The two become one flesh. The two become one flesh. Don't separate it. So he's driving home the ideal. They said to him, so he kind of sidesteps their question initially, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? So they're like, well, yeah, but there's a, there's a situation in the Old Testament where Moses says, um, you know, you can divorce, write a certificate. So he says, well, it's because of the hardness of heart. So this is the critical phrase in all of this, that um, Moses allowed, that's another critical word, allowed, <coughs> It doesn't say endorsed, encouraged, suggested it, uh, thought it was a great idea, allowed. Allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So again, he goes back to the beginning. That's not the ideal. And I say to you, so then he says, whoever divorces his wife, and it might help to put like a bracket around except. So except for sexual immorality. Just easier to read that way. Just put brackets around that clause. Except for sexual immorality. <coughs> and marries another, commits adultery. So, um, let's just look at that first. We're look, I think we understand the logic of the verse. And 
the takeaways then are divorces only divorces only happen when some measure of a hard heart is involved. It could be both the husband and wife have a hard heart. It could be the husband has a hard heart. The wife has a hard heart. Maybe one person has a soft part, heart. One person has a hard heart. But somebody in the mix or both have a hard heart. And hard-heartedness is synonymous with what in Scripture? Sin. So there's no way that Jesus is in any way, shape, or form saying uh, divorce is sometimes permitted and sometimes it's necessary and nobody's at fault. No, somebody is at fault. Somebody sins somewhere along the line to precipitate a divorce. Doesn't, as people love to say in the past, it doesn't mean both parties have, but at least one did, right? So at least one. And then... So we need to understand that any time a divorce happens, at least one party has hardened their hearts against God and therefore against each other. And there's sin involved. And there's, if there's going to be any sort of movement forward, at some point there needs to be confession. It doesn't mean both parties are at fault. They might be, they might not be. So then with regard to remarriage, which Jesus is actually bold enough to address, he, he actually bans it except in cases of sexual immorality. And what I find fascinating, which raises a whole lot of practical questions, is that Jesus labels the remarriage as an adulterous act unless the bond's been broken by sexual immorality. So I don't know how, I don't know how else to read it other than to say that there are some married people in our world that are actually committing adultery even though they're married to each other. So then, Jesus establishes a new ideal which really isn't um, emphasized under the Old Coven. And it comes about as a result of a question the disciples asked. If such is the case with a man and his wife, is it better not to marry? So notice it's almost like a bit of an extreme reaction. Well, then why bother? Sounds a lot like many young people in our culture today. Well, my parents divorced, or my grandparents divorced, or my best friend's parents divorced, and it was really bad, so I'm just going to stay single. And uh, instead of saying, no, 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 I, you know, it'll work out for you, Jesus says, well, um, not everybody can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And then he talks about eunuchs, a eunuch I think we know what a eunuch is. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, so people that are born without sexual drive or maybe without sexual parts. And then there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. So there's people that, maybe not so much in our culture, but back in the day were made eunuchs in order to be indentured into service in a kingdom. Like We're like 99.9% .9 sure that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were eunuchs. That was standard in the kingdom. They, they, they would have had their testicles removed when they were young, and they would have served in the king's court as eunuchs. That was the way it worked. And then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. They've chosen not to exercise that aspect of their biology. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So Jesus is like, yeah, I mean, you should probably consider celibacy then. 
And who better to say that than Jesus himself, who happened to be celibate? Contrary to some who say he was married to Mary Magdalene. Stupid. Well, this raises a great point. There were, in a properly functioning theocracy, like in the Old Testament, when God did, in fact, rule the roost, and the law of the Bible was the law of the land, you're not going to find married adulterers unless it's the king or someone who's got off scot-free because the law said, you do it, you're dead. We stone you. Jesus is speaking into a culture where the Jews were not allowed to do that. You, you could not, even if you wanted to, stone someone in Israel in Jesus' day without Roman permission. You were, in, you were under the occupation of a almost global empire, and you had to follow their laws. So this is why we don't have like full sacrifices going on and those kinds of things in Jesus' day, because it wasn't permitted. So Jesus puts this law into place, which you're right, isn't really stressed. The, the, the principle of it is there in the Old Testament, but it's more of a New Testament law, not because it's new, but because in that context, they didn't have the freedom to be able to do that. It's the same in our culture today. Like, Let's just say for a moment we, we didn't have the New Testament and we believe the Old Testament was fully applicable and that's how we should act. Well, we could believe that all we want, but if the Canadian government says, no, you're not stoning people, then you're not stoning people. So we sort of create like proxy laws that accomplish the same thing in principle, but they're not actually the same laws. Like you can be in favor of capital punishment, but it's a bit of a moot point if you live in Canada. In favor it all you want. We don't do that. So um, I think that's what the, probably the best explanation for that here. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, first of all, there's, there wasn't that many women to go around. And the people that you're reading about in the Bible are mostly rich. Uh, maybe we don't think about this much, but most of the figures you're familiar with in the Old Testament are rich people. Abraham, very rich. right? Lot, very rich. Jacob, very rich. David, very rich. Yeah, Solomon, very rich. You're, uh, even Daniel was from the, aristoc the aristocratic stas st uh, class in his nation. That's why he was taken. So um, not that we don't meet the odd farmer and whatnot, but most people are, are rich people. They're wealthy people. And oftentimes then you, th these are the kind of people that have multiple wives, large families, because they're very much concerned about their clan, their status. They're also creatures of a culture that is influenced by secular norms and morals. And uh, so that's why you sort of get like the perception that everybody in the Old Testament was a polygamist. In actual fact, it probably would have been like one in a thousand. I'm just making up a number. Uh, not that common. Probably pretty rare. And uh, just think about it mathematically. I mean, it wouldn't have been possible for every man 
to have two wives. More or less, you get a boy, you get a girl. You get a boy, you get a girl. You get a boy, you get a girl. Like statistically, it's close to 50-50. So that's a little bit of a misnomer, but the, the explanation for why that is seen in the scriptural text, there, I mean, there's several. Just because you see it doesn't mean it's being endorsed. We've got to remember that. These people were in a different culture, a different time, and God is working with them progressively to reveal more and more of his ultimate plan. Just like we, we actually don't have all of God's plan revealed to us yet. You know that, right? Like We still are going to have questions when we close our eyes in death that have not yet been answered because God has not yet revealed them to us. There's a progress to revelation. God sometimes accommodates the stupidity of culture in the process of moving them toward a higher ideal. There's many things in the Old Testament that aren't ideal. Slavery is not ideal. War is not ideal. Polygamy is not ideal. But God is working with a broken culture to move them toward a greater ethic. And we see, even in transferring from Old Testament into New Testament, that there's like a heightened ethic. There's a, a lessening of an emphasis on slavery. I mean, Paul is so bold as to challenge a Christian slave owner to maybe let his slave free in Philemon. So we see like a progress of revelation, like a, a redemptive, sequential forward movement, so to speak, in Scripture. And that's in reference to like civil laws. Um, of course, the hardcore moral laws, like not blaspheming or committing adultery, those are the same cover to cover. I know it sounds odd to us, so we, we can't like digest this piece of information at an emotional level, but just technically speaking, by law and religious custom, polygamy is not adultery because you actually are married to these people. And it wasn't like you're married to the first one and the rest are just bonuses. You're, you're actually married to these people. Like these men were responsible in the same way that they were for their first wife, for their second wife, and their third wife. So they were in covenant with them. I mean, yeah, we as adults are a little bit weird thinking they're going around having sex with each other. Like how does that all work? But at the end of the day, they were all covenantal relationships when it came to polygamous relationships. They were still, they were still, they were still not a covenant, but they were still in a legal agreement. Like they were, that was a monogamous relationship in terms of king to concubine. Like the concubines weren't moving around a bunch, among a bunch of guys. They weren't prostitutes. They were often gift wives from foreign dignitaries to seal treaties and covenants and that kind of thing. And um, they were, they were uh, you know, very much part of a culture that also understood blessing in terms of progeny. And you, know, you read about different guys in the Old Testament, they're rich, 70 sons, they all get wiped out. So very important for them to push their, their names forward and therefore having multiple wives, therefore multiple children was considered a good move and a way of sort of solidifying their kingdom. So we mustn't read scripture every time someone's doing something, assume that that's the <coughs> ultimate ideal. It may be permissible. Uh, I mean, if you have a problem with God permitting certain things that aren't necessarily the ideal, well, just read the text we just read. He even permits divorce, even though it's not his ideal. And it does involve a measure of movement away from his ultimate ideal. Yeah. Um, just so I understand, New Testament um, covenant is the same as law 
because we as Christians believe biblically that the only reason for a divorce would be fornication. Um, yeah, if you were using fornication in the broad sense of sexual immorality, yes. Um, what about people that are involved in, uh, like, the unbelievers period of unbeliever or women that are involved in physical abuse from their husbands? Oh, okay, like, what are the reasons would there be for divorce, you mean? Yes, like, is there, other, oh, okay. like, as a believer, I know some Christians, I'm just, I would like to say. Okay, well, um, 1 Corinthians 7, okay, we're just looking at this text, but 1 Corinthians 7 is not, it's not actually a divorce text, but it, it could be in that uh, it says if your unbelieving spouse departs, let them depart. So, I mean, it doesn't get into remarriage, it doesn't actually use the word divorce, but it, it seems to say to, let's say, a Christian wife or husband that's come to faith and their spouses and they're like, I don't want to be part of your God, that you're not bound to that person if they say, I'm out of here. So we would just call that abandonment. So if a, Christ, if a Christian is married to a non-Christian and the non-Christian says, I'm out of here, the Christian doesn't have to like pursue them relentlessly. They're free. They're not responsible before God for the breakdown of that marriage if the person departs. So then some Christians would take just that principle and say, if you're abandoned by your spouse, which is in essence a non-Christian act, a display of lack of true faith in God, then you're free to remarry. But that's, that's like a logical or a next step. It's not technically specified in the scripture. So you just sort of need to make a determination in your own mind of a level of conscience whether you would feel comfortable marrying someone who was abandoned by um, an unbelieving spouse. I would, um, but some people wouldn't really see that as being acceptable. And um, then we need to differentiate between divorce and remarriage. So the broader ethic of Scripture, I think, would push us in the direction of never saying to someone who's being like beat up, oh, you got to stay in the household. And that would just be stupid. To me, that violates the laws of wisdom. Whether there's a permission to remarry after that, I mean, that's more of an issue of personal conscience. Um, so if, if, let's take a woman, because it's generally the woman. Uh, if a woman came to me and said, you know, my husband was beating the cr crap out of me or something like that, do I have to stick around? I would say no. What's your proof text for? I don't have one. But I would feel comfortable with my understanding of the broader ethic of Scripture, not saying to someone, you've got to stay in a relationship where someone's beating you up. The problem I have is we use this word abuse in a really elastic -y way. He's not a nice guy. Oh, you didn't figure that out when you're dating him? Um, well, we don't get along. He's abusive emotionally. He's abusive psychologically. I don't even know what that means because it could mean 101 different things. Like if you put a scale up, on, let's say we drew another little chart here and we wrote down the word abuse as our long word and we came up with a scale of, you know, he gave me a dirty look to he threatened me with a butcher knife. There's a, there's a, that's a long, there's a lot of things that would take place between those things. And the question would be like, at what point is it legitimate? Because like if, let's say a Christian's married to an unbeliever. Well, is it going to be hunky-dory? No, because that person doesn't know your God and they're not accountable to God's people. Like you wouldn't expect them to be 
for things to be necessarily great. And if it is, it's just an added bonus. So I, those, those kinds of cases, I sort of like to hear them out individually because I, I would not feel comfortable just making a blanket statement because people can use this word in a hundred different ways. Oh, if your spouse is abusing you, you have a, you know, a, a, an opportunity to leave. Because again, that could mean they're giving me a dirty look. They're not attentive to my needs. They don't buy me roses on Valentine's right through to they're trying to kill me. And that's a really long spectrum. And, um, you know, we just need to exercise some discretion there. Yeah, Sam? Phrase it as a question. Is, there, is it not uh, a baby Christian compared to a very, very, very mature Christian, uh, a form of being unequally yoked? Yeah, sure. Like, oftentimes you'll have like a young girl or something and she's dating some unbeliever or a guy that's dating an, an unbeliever and then the person suddenly makes a, a profession of faith. Well, we now qualify to be baptized. I'm like, or sorry, we now qualify to be married. I'm like, well... Yeah, I guess like technically you do, but shouldn't you sort of be on the same page? Like, okay, so take my role. Let's just say my wife dies. Aaron Rock's now a single lead pastor in the church. And two years later, I show up to church with my new girlfriend or my new fiance. And you're like, oh, tell me about your new girlfriend. How long has she been saved? Oh, she's been saved for a week. But she's saved. Like, would any of you have a little bit of an issue with that? Like, it, it, like this guy is, like, in a position of spiritual leadership. We're pretty sure his wife's probably going to have some influence upon his life. Like, is it the wisest? I mean, we probably can't find a verse, but is it, like, the wisest thing for a guy in a position of spiritual leadership to be married to, like, a brand-new baby Christian who doesn't know anything yet? Yeah, I would say it is. I, and why would I want that? So I'm using that as an example because I think it's, it's like the kind of example you would like, yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. Well, isn't a re- doesn't a relationship in marriage require the man to be capable of spiritual leadership? Yes or no? Well, if he's been saved for a week, how would he know what that even looks like? So you've got to give him a little bit of time to become a spiritual leader. Or even if it's the other way around, um, you know, the, a, a, a guy who's, let's say, a mature believer, well, first of all, he'd want to apologize to the woman he's dating who's not a believer or just became a believer for even initiating a relationship with her from the beginning because what that says is he started off as the very opposite of a spiritual leader. He started off as a rebellious punk against God and now he's laying claim to being her spiritual leader even though he didn't start the relationship that way. So he has some fences to mend before he can even proclaim himself to be a spiritual leader and then it's going to take him a little while to determine whether she would have an interest in truly following his spiritual leadership. So... These are all practical considerations. I wouldn't have any problem with saying to a couple that maybe came to me to get married and you know, one had just barely been saved, I think you need to wait a little while you know, to make sure that both of you are... I mean, there's no like app you can download to determine exactly where you're at in terms of spiritual compatibility. Uh, you, could probably, you could probably put one out. But um, there has to be some compatibility beyond personality like those of you that are married to somebody believer or not 
I mean, you, you all know how foundational at the end of the day, your walk with Christ, your spouse's lack of walk with Christ is to you, the dynamics of your relationship. So we need to then feel comfortable as married people speaking into the lives of single people and saying, look, this isn't just you go to the same church on Sunday. Like, that is so shallow. It is so much more than that. And it's not just having the same values. Well, he's a Muslim. He's got the same values as me. Okay, that's, that's, we're not talking about agreeing on morals. It's so much more than that. And yeah, I mean, God can redeem stupid choices like he's done with most of us in many relationships. So it's not like every relationship that starts out as unequally yoked ends in a you know, horrible, fiery mess. But, uh, you know, if God, let's not, let's not assume, let's not presume upon God's grace that he's going to do what we want him to do. Let's, let's, let's work with what we know not with what we hope might happen. And just be wise uh, in the process. So I probably gave you more of an answer to the question than you asked for. But, uh, yeah. So in, in a soundbite, sexual immorality, you can leave. Abandonment, you're free and clear. Whether you can remarry or not, that's a personal conscience choice. Uh, your life's being threatened, leave. Whether you marry or not, again, that's more of a personal conscience thing um, on that matter. Someone back here, I think. Oh, okay. What do you mean by personal? <coughs> well, it means that I don't want to add um, parameters and enforce those parameters um, beyond the, the clear dictates of Scripture. But if I add rules or I choose to be more flexible than another Christian, so let's say there's two Christians and one's like, no, I, I don't think the First Corinthians 7 thing permits remarriage. And another says, I think it implies that it does. I think we can allow for two different opinions on that without saying we are a heretic because this, the text doesn't actually take it to that next. It doesn't answer the, the question that comes next. But let, let me just say this. While issues of divorce and remarriage do require on a certain level, in certain situations, just a, a large dose of prayer and guidance in the spirit and wisdom, let's not take the clear dictates that we are given and abandon those. And this text is very clear. If a man marries a woman and either party commits sexual a sexually immoral act, that person is choosing to be single for the rest of their life. And if they choose to remarry, which would imply you're having sex with someone else, you are an adulterer in that marriage. So there are Christians who have remarried that have an Ontario marriage license and some pastor, for whatever reason, maybe even rubber stamped it, but they are actually committing an adulterous act. Now, the next question might be, well, d does that adulterous act like last forever or could a person then recognize that the marriage started wrong, confess the sin, and make the marriage work? Again, that's kind of like a matter of personal conscience. I would respect people on both sides of the equation. I would tend to say 
if there's genuine true repentance, okay, and there was no opportunity to reconcile the first marriage, or there was no other considerations to be given, uh, you don't, you can't unscramble an egg, and you uh, confess that sin, and you try to move forward, recognizing that your relationship did not start off on the right foot. It was not part of God's ideal. Other times, like if somebody were to say to me, no, I knew it was a sin. I married the person anyway, but now that I have my marriage license, I'm just going to forgive and move on. I would say, no, the right thing for you to do is to file a divorce and to stay single for the rest of your life. Because now you're playing with God. I'm going to perform the act. I'm going to sin. I'm going to get my marriage license. And then I'm going to assume, well, if I just confess it later. I mean, the Bible speaks about that kind of thing. Shall we sin that grace might abound? Then you're just playing games with God. And that's not true repentance. But if there's true repentance, um, by the way, if you have a problem with that, um, read Ezra. Because I'll just ask you a question. Does God ever encourage divorce? Yeah, he does. In Ezra. He says, you guys married women outside of the covenant. You will divorce them all. You will put them away. You will send them off. And you will do that which is right. So we have a, a glaring example of God saying, no, you should divorce in Ezra. When these guys were coming back from Babylon, he's basically saying these marriages, they're marriages, they're illegitimate. You need to end them. And some of them had children. So throw that one into your divorce and remarriage mix. But God endorsed that. So, Okay, let's take a break. We have some coffee and I think some snacks at the back. Okay, so we're going to look at Matthew 21, a little, little bit of an odd text. All right, um, when, when we've, um, well, let me read the text first. So Matthew 21, 18 to 22, in the morning as he was returning to the city, that's Jesus, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fruit tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Well, the second part sounds sort of Jesus-like, but the first part sounds a little odd at first read. So, like, did Jesus have a temper issue? Did he not like fig trees? Like, what, what's the point of this? So, uh, when, when I've taught courses on biblical interpretation in the past, we've sort of gone through this process, and we're like, okay, uh, we need to explore things like um, what testament was it in? What's the language of the text? Uh, what's the geography? What's the culture? What are some questions we might have to answer in order to better understand the text? And normally, issues of geography or plant life wouldn't be ones we would have to look at too often, but this is one of the ones where probably a bit of geography and definitely a bit of horticulture is necessary to answer the question. Why did Jesus do this? So the background information is that Jesus, of course, is the master of parables. He tells 
earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Here, it's more like a living parable where he does something parabolic. And his earthly actions, I'm going to suggest, have a heavenly meaning attached to them. So what is the earthly action? What's the heavenly meaning? We, we do know, even based upon the passage we read uh, previous tonight, that fruit was understood to refer to righteous deeds, correct? You can go to Galatians 5 for another reference where we have the fruit of the Spirit. So fruit is like an analogy. Everybody loves fruit. Fruit's an analogy of good deeds, that which God requires of us. Now, Matthew is one of three synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels in that there's a lot of synonymous events that are recorded in all three. And if you were to check out, we're not going to take the time to do it, but if you were to check out Mark's record of this event, he adds a little piece of information. He says, it was not even the season for figs. He adds this. Matthew doesn't include this piece of information. But he does add that to the text. And regar- irregardless, um, it, sorry, irrespective. Someone's correcting me. Apparently, irregardless is not a real word. So um, irrespective of that detail, <laughs> or regardless of that detail, thank you, Nancy, um, why curse the tree? Uh, well, apparently, fig trees only in that part of the world, I don't know, maybe in other parts of the world, only leaf around the time that they are going to produce fruit. So it's like the leaves come and then the fruit, pretty close to each other. So probably what's going on here is that even though Mark says it was not the season for figs, that probably is intended to say that this might have been the only tree, the only fig tree that Jesus saw at that period that actually had leaves on it. So it's like the tree is falsely advertising that it also has fruit. And that's why Jesus approaches it. But approaching this tree that has leaves on it, which would imply, oh, it has fruit. Maybe it has early fruit. Lo and behold, it doesn't have any figs. It's falsely advertising fruit through the bearing of leaves. And so Jesus curses it, but he curses it performs an er earthly act, this earthly uh, exchange between a man who's fully human and needs to eat and is hungry and a tree becomes, in the text then, a spiritual analogy whereby Jesus ridicules others for showing a semblance of spiritual life but possessing no true fruit. You see? So a bit of a backhanded slap again to those who maybe are claiming to be religious, which is often Jesus' audience, but who are not producing any fruit. Now, there's differences of opinion as to whether this is symbolic of Israel or just individuals at the time, or both. We could debate that, I suppose. But Jesus does seem to be performing an act which he then immediately uses to spring off into a little mini-sermon on (coughs) true faith. So if Jesus is then speaking about true fruit, he's speaking then about faith, legitimate faith. So then he takes a moment to just kind of preach a little sermonette and uh, clarify for them the nature of true faith. And therefore, in verse 20, he says, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has 
uh, uh, sorry, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, uh, but even if you say to this mountain. So when he says this mountain, he's probably on the Mount of Olives, perhaps. And uh, from the Mount of Olives, I guess if you're up the top of it, you could see the Dead Sea. I think you'd have trouble seeing the Mediterranean, but you could see the Dead Sea from that. So he may be then, speaking of the actual mountain that he's on, throwing it down into the, into the Dead Sea. Obviously, he's using hyperbole. Okay? Um, it's not l there's no instances in Scripture of anybody picking up mountains and tossing them into seas. But he's using the language of, hum of hyperbole or you know, extreme speak speech to stress that uh, true faith quenches doubt which enables us to do amazing things. So I, I think Jesus, very simply, is um, fundamentally speaking out against um, people who seem to be alive and are bearing certain signs of faith, but don't really have faith. And that's manifested in a lack of fruit, which ultimately is manifested in a lack of power to live a faith-filled life, and instead they'll be marked by doubt. Okay? Probably what's going on. I haven't been grading them all, because you haven't been asking me, but I'm going to give that one like a B to a B plus. Okay? Any questions on that? Make sense? All right, Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour that Jesus is on the cross here, he cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, <clears throat> in uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic. He, in all likelihood, spoke Hebrew. And in all likelihood, spoke Greek. <clears throat> he may even have spoke uh, a little bit of Latin, like early forms of Latin. Now, a few things uh, about these languages. Uh, Aramaic is a sister language to Hebrew, but it's broader. So Hebrew is kind of like a dialect of Aramaic. In fact, the modern Hebrew alphabet is the Aramaic alphabet. And so think of this as like a, like a bigger language, and this is like a smaller language, but it's part of the same language group. And, and um, from the time of like the, the exiles of Israel right through to the time of Christ, that area of the world, like the Mesopotamian crescent, the fertile crescent down and through Palestine and whatnot, the dominant language would have, the dominant uh, household language would have been Aramaic. Probably, probably not as many Jews at the time would have been fluent in Hebrew as they would have been Aramaic. And then the lingua franca of the world, the common language of the world, was this one. So it was Koine Greek, we call it. Um, not to be mistaken for classical Greek. Sometimes people think it's the same. It's a little different. Koine Greek is common Greek. It's more colloquial. There's more colloquialism. It's just more common um, most of Jesus' ministry, like when he's actually speaking, 
was likely being done in this, and he's quoting from scripture in this, but it's recorded by the gospel writers in Greek, which is kind of weird to think about. No, we have it in Greek, but it actually came to us in Aramaic. So this is Greek text. Matthew through Revelation, they're written in Greek. And, but they choose to record certain sayings in the, the words that Jesus actually spoke, Aramaic or Hebrew. And they do it for a reason. And this one, the reason why uh, the, um, the writer chooses to give us the Aramaic slash Hebrew, I'll type that in a moment, of Jesus is because the audience that's listening misunderstands what Jesus is saying. So that's why he gives it to us in Hebrew or Aramaic for that purpose. So the, the words Eli or Eloi, um, Eli is actually more of the Aramaic style. Some texts have Eloi, but uh, the point being is that Jesus crucifier or uh, the people that were crucifying Jesus may not have been particularly fluent in it. Or if he actually said it as Eloi and not Eli, then he clearly would have been using Hebrew, which would out of these three been the least spoken of the least spoken of these three language languages among the people that were at the foot of the cross. Whereas Lamas the Bakhtanai is actually Aramaic and presumably then more of them would have understood that. So when Jesus says Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. Notice that the response um, in the text is not with regard to the second two words. 22, uh, I'll just take you to verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling who? Elijah. Eli, Eloi, Eli. So they may have understood Lama Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? But for whatever reason, because their lack of understanding of Hebrew at least, they, I think he's saying, like, Elijah, Elijah, why have you forsaken me? Now, this may or may not be the case, but some scholars believe that Elijah, because in Second Kings, he's described as being taken up into heaven and didn't die. That there was a rabbinic tradition in Jesus' day that said that if you called upon Elijah in a time of need, he would come and meet your need. This was not, not a biblical thought, but it's like a rabbinic thought. So it, if that's the case, it just kind of adds a little interesting tidbit to their interpretation of what Jesus is saying. They may have thought that Jesus was calling upon Elijah to save him. But even if they didn't think that, it's clear they don't understand the Hebrew word Eloi and think that he is calling for Elijah. So that, that explains why there seems to be a little confusion among the listeners as to what he's actually doing. Now, the, the next question is more of like a theological one than a linguistic one. And that is like, why would Jesus say it, period? Like, why would Jesus, who's God, say my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, the answer to that is that while we stress the full deity of Christ, we also must stress the full humanity of Christ. 
And the deity of Christ doesn't negate the fact that in the fullest sense, Jesus was fully human. So he felt pain and he felt emotional abandonment. And biblically, when Jesus cries out on the cross, whether he's thirsty or crying out to God the Father because of the sense of pending abandonment, uh, it is his humanity expressing the fact that he recognizes there is going to be a rupture of fellowship between the Father and the Son while he's in the grave. And this does not mean, you need to sort of differentiate between like Jesus being. So we call this his ontology, right? It doesn't mean that God and the Son were somehow ripped apart in terms of their Godhood. But fellowship was hindered and, in a sense, marred and ruptured on the cross because Jesus had to become sin for us, and he went into a grave. And in that process, there clearly is several indications on the cross that Jesus was experiencing a rupture of fellowship unlike anything he had experienced. We know that he had warm fellowship with the Father. We read about that in Matthew eleven twenty seven. He talks about knowing the will of the Father and whatnot. But this was a very real demonstration of the full humanity of Christ experiencing a rupture of fellowship with the Father. And therefore, it is a legitimate and uh, understandable cry of his humanity. And it helps us to see that Jesus wasn't just some guy, you know, on the cross hanging out and wasn't really feeling it because he's God. And, you know, it wasn't really that big of a deal because he's God after all. And, you know, he didn't really sense any abandonment because he's God after all. No, his, his humanity was as engaged as if it was you. So just as if you were nailed to a cross and nobody's with you and no one's paying attention to you, you would feel all of those very human feelings. Jesus, in the fullest sense, experienced all those human feelings uh, for us. And therefore, it is, a, it is a, um, an, in a sense, an, strangely, an encouraging manifestation of Jesus as one who can relate and one who actually did do something significant for us. Any questions about that? James? Yes. Uh, Psalm 22. Mm. But there's a little bit of debate as to whether Jesus was quoting, I think it's Psalm 22, as to whether, sorry? 22.1. As to whether Jesus was quoting this or it just happens to be teaching the same thing. Uh, yeah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving the words of my God? Of course, this is David, right? But Jesus is, probably need to go on in this whole talk, but Jesus is uh, the new David, in a sense, uh, the fulfillment of the throne of David, and so he often borrows David's language and prophecy and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Any other comments or questions, Nancy? Yeah. Father turned his face away. I mean, we sing about that in our song, our hymnology, right? But again, that doesn't mean it was like Jesus stopped being God, but just looking at his humanity, yes, Jesus became sin for us, and there's a rupture of fellowship, which is 
just a fascinating thought. Okay, anything else? Uh, uh, Sam. Yes. Mm. Take the cup of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we had a conversation, maybe, maybe in this class. I can't remember about uh, like how how the full how Jesus expresses himself at times out of his humanity and out of his deity. And even in asking that question, it's like, well, he's God, wouldn't he know, right? That's another spin-off question. But you need to kind of come back to this historical orthodox understanding that the, um, the deity of Christ, so Jesus is uh, fully human, and he's fully divine, and as he operates in the incarnation. Sometimes he is ministering out of his full humanity and sometimes he's ministering out of his divinity. So therefore, at times, Jesus kind of has this like uh, om omniscience to him. He seems to know things normal people don't know. But other times, he'll make statements like only the Father knows you know, who's going to come. And so we need to understand it's not that he's not being God at one point or whatnot, but he's operating at times out of his uh, humanity and other times he's operating out of his divinity. And that helps us to kind of keep everything all together. Like it, it explains why these things are happening in the text without contradicting either one. Mm -hmm. Just like with, with God, the whole triunity, tri uh, triunity of God, sometimes while God is one, it's the Father ministering, or it's the Spirit ministering, or it's the Son ministering. Now those are three persons in one, but it's still one God. But sometimes God's ministering to us through this person of the Spirit in, let's say, regeneration or conviction. Other times he's ministering to us through the person of the Son, like in the Christ event, or when he walked among us. Um, other times he's it's the Father ministering to us through the, the authority vested in him to send the Son. So um, not exactly the same thing, but it's kind of a similar idea there. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, we're going to move into Romans. Now, I just want to make a comment. Somebody submitted, and you may not remember doing this, but somebody submitted John 1.14, which is, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, that's a passage that I preached in my Who is Jesus series. I, I just wasn't really sure what it was about that verse that you wanted help on. So if someone could maybe, if, if it was you, you, maybe shoot me a little email, let me know what you're, thinking there because I was just kind of reading it thinking I'm not really sure what you want me to comment on like I can preach it but it, it doesn't seem like a difficult passage to me but there may be something in there you want clarity I just don't know what it is 
So instead of just trying to figure that out, I need you to tell me what you're wanting to know, okay? So you can do that anytime. But let's go to Romans, and um, we'll have a little bit of fun with at least one passage. So let's go to Romans 9. Now, Romans 9 says, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Uh, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Okay, well, this is a good question. I just find it kind of cool that the same question that Paul presupposes the listener of the statement in verse 18 will ask is the exact same question people are still asking today. And that is why somebody submitted this passage, I think. Because if God says to you, I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy on, and I will harden whomever I will harden, you're going to ask the question that's recorded in verse 18. Why does he still find fault then? Who can resist his will? Right? So I just think it's kind of cool that not only is the this interesting statement given, but he uh, predicts what the response will be. Now, um, what we kind of need to do here is maybe back up a little bit and just sort of work sequentially through Uh, a little broader portion of the chapter. So let's just go right back up to the beginning of the chapter. He says, uh, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, great anguish, unceasing anguish in my heart. Uh, For I wish, and this is Paul here, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So he's just kind of mourning for the, the fact that he's been seeing a lot of Gentiles or Jews in the diaspora come to faith in Christ, but not a lot of Jews are sort of biting on the bait. This kind of burdens him. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, giving the law, the worship promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and so forth and so on. So he's, he's just bemoaning the fact that the Jews as a whole have sort of said we're not interested in Jesus. In fact, if we'd, we'd be better off just to crucify him, and they did that. But then... Um, Verse 6, so think, just think about that sentiment then that might help a little bit. Verse 6 then says, But is it not as though the word of God, but it is not as though the word of God has failed? Now this is really, really important here. Because you could also ask the question, if, if these are God's covenant people, is God impotent? Like why couldn't he convince them to stay married to him, so to speak? That would be a good question. So what follows then is actually necessary to guard the sovereign godness of God. Uh, This is why we have this conversation now about God being absolutely sovereign in case anybody who saw, Jews or Gentiles alike, who saw that the Jews en masse rejected Christ, and says, you know, that, that proves that God is not actually in control. He couldn't even woo the people, this little nation over So keep that in mind. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, so forth and so on. So this is where he then spiritualizes and starts to speak of a new Israel, a spiritual seed of Israel. We would know it as the church, composed of Jewish or Gentile converts. So moving down to... um, Verse uh, 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not yet 
done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, uh, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And then this very extreme statement, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So as, as Paul then moves closer and closer to this very strong defense of God's absolute sovereignty, which might be called into question because the Jews en masse rejected him, the first thing he does is he resorts to the Old Testament itself and says, no, I, w- I was even sovereign back then. So even those that followed me back then followed me because I chose them. And he uses like the, the strongest language possible, love and hate, kind of makes you feel uncomfortable, um, to stress the fact there's two boys. They all, everybody would have known the story. One he picked, one he rejected. If you read the, uh, the account of Esau and Jacob objectively, and you just put away all your preconceived notions of what you've been taught, it's not easy to like Jacob. Like Esau is actually a like, more likable person. I don't know if you've thought about that much, but Esau is actually more of a likable person. He doesn't really, there's not really anything bad about the guy. He's, he's kind of a nice guy, actually. He's a man's man. He even forgives his brother later on, like when he's gone off for years and comes back and he doesn't like wipe out his kids. Jacob's like sending his wives and kids ahead like this coward, right? He's just kind of a bit of a twit. But God just says here, in in order that his purpose might stand, he nevertheless favors the younger. So the, the broadest explanation for that is God chooses the underdog and the unlikable to accentuate his grace because it's the, not the guy that you would pick. Every one of you would pick Esau because he's more likable. He's like a man's man. He's a little wimp hanging around the tents with his mom. And want me to help you make some cookies, mom? His brother's out like killing big animals and everything and and, you know, his, his brother is, like, mature and, you know, went into puberty at the age of eight. And, you know, <laughs> Jacob's, like, this smooth little silky-skinned guy. Like, he's just not a likable person. Um, so you can never conclude in the text, God picked Jacob because he actually kind of had a little, little better profile. No, he didn't. He's, he's kind of irritating. And that accentuates God's grace, like, in the loudest possible way. So, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So that, that ought to, that's a, that's a good, great question. And we all got to ask it. Like, let's not be like so super spiritual that we wouldn't ask the question. Is there not injustice on God's part? Like that doesn't, you know, like uh, the whole rhetoric of, you know, you don't favor one kid over the other. We live in a democracy, but he gets a fair crack at things. You know, the, the, the American slash Canadian dream, um, elements of socialism. Everybody sort of has the same access to health care. Uh, democracy, theoretically, anybody could be our prime minister. All of this stuff that is part of culture that we actually appreciate makes this sound really bad. And... Uh, so Paul just immediately answers the question, okay, by no means. Then a kind of an explanation. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. 
Okay, well, that just sounds like he's contradicting himself or feeding the argument that he's not fair. But follow his train of thought here. So then it depends not on a human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. This is the Pharaoh that um, actually hardened his heart against God. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You should probably underline that. Because that is essentially the same thing that God is saying by picking the little jerk Jacob over the nice guy Esau. That I don't, it's not based upon you. You don't contribute to my grace. You just don't. And um, then he goes on to say, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So he says it again. Like it's, it's, it says it so many times you can't even debate it, right? It's not like, well, maybe that we're interpreting it wrong. No, he just like says it over and over again. Verse 19, you will say to me then, and this is our text, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Well, that's the exact same question, just worded differently, that we see in verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? Same thing. So he's acknowledging the objections. He's acknowledging the objections. He's saying the same thing. He's saying the same thing. This must be important. But then he says something akin to what we read in Job. Very similar language to Job. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? By the way, People that don't like this teaching seem to still be okay with Job, which I find fascinating. Because Job actually, there's actually more words in Job that say this than there are in Romans, I think. And, I mean, Job's, what, 50 chapters? And it's, like, pretty obvious what God is doing there. Has the potter no right over the clay to make use of the same lump? one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use. So here's where God just sort of like reminds us he's the creator, you're the lump. And uh, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured? So now it's almost like you're, not necessarily that you're going to pity God, but you need to see what God has gone through. Has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. (coughs) in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So that is, to sort of clear that language up, that's um, very similar language to verse 18, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, harden who I want to harden. Uh, And then verse 24, this is where, Um, it gets really important to read carefully. Even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed it says in Isaiah. So this goes kind of back to that calling conversation we had a little while back. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. Unexpected grace, you could say. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. 
Now, listen to this. Okay. He quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. So, Paul goes back seven centuries. Isaiah is about a seventh century prophet. And interestingly, to anybody who's like, well, I never heard this before. He said, no, actually, Isaiah said it seven centuries ago. You just didn't read him carefully enough. This is not new to the New Testament. Like, this is interesting, too. A lot of Christians are like, well, I don't like this. This is, like, shocking. I've read from Genesis till Romans the first time I've ever heard this. Well, you, you weren't reading very carefully because the entire Old Testament is about God picking the Jews over and above, like, the hundreds of other ethnic groups who were out there and slaughtering them and killing them and damning them and nobody has a problem with that but all of a sudden when Paul sort of like puts words on the events that are happening in the Old Testament it's like oh this is new to me I never saw this before like how can you read <laughs> let's just be honest. how can you read the Old Testament and not be aware that the Jews are a very small percentage of the world population and for the most part God is only working with them I mean, that's like Romans, the, the teaching of passages like this, magnified in an extended multi-thousand-year-long narrative. But even within that narrative, when you come to passages like Isaiah, Isaiah says, actually, you may think it's all of you, but it's still only a few of you. And it always has been, and it always will be. For the Lord shall carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So here is the key, folks. If God didn't pick some, there would literally be none. So let's read it again. If the Lord had not left us offspring, he would, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. There wouldn't be any. If it wasn't for God's sovereign love directed toward Jacob, there would not, not only be no Esau, there would be no Jacob either. What then shall we say? That Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying a, a, in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. So why does this offend you? It offends everybody. It's offensive. It is offensive to think that God would choose Jacob over Esau. I find that offensive. I find it offensive that God, this is my humanity speaking, I find it offensive that God predestines and elects. I find that very offensive. That doesn't seem fair to me. Um, I find it offensive that God chose Israel and not my Gentile ancestors. I find it very offensive. But he says we will. And it's the, the offense that comes at hearing this that proves the point that we are not worthy and capable of pursuing God in righteousness. And therefore, without God picking some, all would be damned. All would be damned. 
So this passage, I think, really serves to, like, humble. It's very humbling. Uh, in our life group on Sunday night, I've, I've preached this kind of stuff before, but I, I don't know, sometimes when you hear someone else saying it, it's like, wow, I'm hearing it for the first time. We were watching a video, probably it's a 10-year-old video called uh, Indescribable by um, Louis Giglio. And uh, basically, he's talking about astronomy, right? And he's um, talking about the size of the world and how quick light goes around it, how fast the um, you know, light travels in a minute and then in a year. And then he starts using like numbers that we can't even fathom. And then how many like tens of thousands of years, whatever it takes just for the light to cross our solar or our galaxy and then how many more galaxies. And it just, you get to a point where it's like, okay, this is like, like unimaginably big, like just beyond belief, indescribable. It's called indescribable. It's indescribably big. And then he shows this slide, and um, actually it brought tears to my eyes because he shows this slide, and he describes it really well, where this uh, satellite had gone tens of thousands of light years out into space, and I think it was about to the point where it would no longer be able to see back, so they radio it and have it take a picture of Earth. And so he, he describes this thing taking like all these taking all these images of what it can see. And, um, and then they, sh they, they, they take these images and they like put them together. And, and you can look it up online. Is it called the pale blue dot, Susie? Is that what he said it was called? Yeah, the pale blue dot. So it's a, it's a, it's a black slide. It kind of boring looking at first. It's a black slide. And it just shows like a couple little um, strands of light. And amazingly, in one of these strands of light, there's this little tiny pale blue dot. And amazingly, this camera, like millions of miles out from Earth, captures nothing else but Earth in this little beam of light. It's like a, you call it like a fluke, right? But you look at this pale blue dot and you're like, Okay, this is just like a little ways out, and that's us. The little pale blue dot is Earth. And you realize, like, okay, I, like I have some major issues here um, with pride and with thinking that I'm bigger than I am. I mean, I know I'm small, but I really don't know how small I am. Like, I am small beyond belief. Like, beyond belief, people, that... You know, we have God and all of his grandeur. We, th we think of God as big and grand, but it's, he's unimaginably big. And we are unimaginably small. Like just, the, the difference between God and you is greater than the distance between you and any microscopic organism which you would step on or clean up with a Clorox rag without thinking twice about it. Because a, a microscopic organism and a human being are both created. God is creator. And he's beyond this universe that we haven't created telescopes powerful enough to see yet the whole of it. But in his grace, this is what blows my mind. This is, if I were to become an atheist, it would not be because I don't believe there is a God. It's because I would have a really hard, 
sometimes have a hard time believing that God, if he's that big, would actually take an interest in us. So I kind of, I don't think he's really out. He, he's out there, but he, why would he, why would the God of all that complexity come to a pale blue dot? And why would he live among us and be abused? Like, that just is ridiculous. Like, why would he do that? It's unimaginable. But he did it. And then we have like the, the uh, proverbial gonads to say, well, why are you doing it this way? Like, why'd you pick him, not me? What about me? And it's just so stupid. It's a stupid question. But if you just allow your humanity to guide you in these conversations, you're going to arrive at the same conclusion that the early reader, why did, you, why did you do that? It's not fair. It doesn't make sense. Who can resist his will? What about me? It's not fair, yada, yada, yada. But if you just kind of really understand who you are, the question no, is not really all that interesting anymore. The interesting question becomes not who can resist his will, but how do you want me to worship you now? Because in your sovereign grace, you've chosen me. And so I have often said this. Those of you that have heard me teach on these kinds of things before have heard this. Uh, I just find it really helpful that as best as I can tell, all of the election texts of Scripture, okay, all of the election texts of Scripture, the predestination texts of Scripture, uh, if they are used for the purpose of creating new denominations or upsetting people or um, causing people to write other people off because they don't see it their way, are all being thoroughly misused and abused because every election text that I've ever read is intrinsically set within the context of some form of worship. So even in Ephesians 1, which is another one, Paul's like praying and he's just crying out to God and he's just so excited for what God's doing in the Ephesian church and that's where he's talking about election. So therefore, I would suggest to you that on one hand, we will, must explore these matters intellectually, but if they do not lead to worship, then you've wasted your time. Because the, the, the truest takeaway from any conversation about worship or predestination is, wow. Wow. And I need to worship him now. But if the takeaway is, well, you don't agree with me, so you're an idiot, then the text is not being used properly. So this is why I have a lot of grace towards people who aren't there yet. Because if I don't have grace towards people who aren't there yet and maybe don't accept this, then I'm, I don't understand God's own grace in my own life. But an observation that I have made in my life, this is just my, my observation, it's my limited life experience. Um, people never, I've not yet met anybody who found this to be easy, who accepted it, who taught it and believed it to be true, who then later drifted into more of a free will, it's us that makes the choice kind of a philosophy. Never, I've never seen the trajectory go that way, to this point, never seen it go that way. I've only seen it go the other way, where people that are more like, it's all about me, I make the choice, God's fairsy squaresy, it's equal playing field for everybody. They either stay there, or they move in the direction of affirming that God is actually totally in charge of it all. 
And I've always found that fascinating because it seems to be that's, that's the actual trajectory of Scripture, that by nature we think we're worthier than we actually are. Even those of us that have like a low view of human nature, we still kind of think we contribute a little bit. Or we at least say, God, you probably should give everybody an equal chance. And it's just not in Scripture. Like, you could look far and wide. It's just not there. So the only other thing we need to do then, and you're going to need to come back next week for this, is we're gonna, we need to then understand why does God say in passages like Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we need to address that to try to understand how that syncs with what we've just heard. But you'll have to wait till next week for that one.